to Season of the Bitch, the podcast that knows going to the gyno is way scarier than going to the dentist. Today we have Zoe, Hope, Bianca, Julia, and Kellen. I always want to say yay after our names because I'm just like, (laughs) yay, you're all here. (laughs) But today we're going to be talking about gynecology, both past and present. Um, For those who may not be aware, I want to give a content warning up front. Um, The history and some current practices of gynecology are extremely fucked up. And this episode will include a lot of mention to non-consensual and violent practices on people's bodies. So with that said, if you're sticking around, here we go. (laughs) Um, Yeah, a little bit of semantics that I kind of wanted to talk about before we like really get into it here. First, I know we're going to be talking about like gender affirming care specifically later on, but it's important to note up front that not everyone with a uterus identifies as a woman and not all women have uterus, uteri, uteruses. (laughs) (laughs) One of them. (laughs) (laughs) Which feels obvious, and yet I feel like these things, not I feel like, these things are often talked about as, like, women's issues, which is extremely turfy and exclusionary. So getting that out there, bringing me to my second point of semantics, which I was talking to Julia about a little bit in preparation for this episode, and we decided to talk about it on the episode. So I guess, like, yeah, the widely accepted term for referring to these things is typically, like, reproductive health or reproductive justice, And while, like, reproductive justice is a really important model and does acknowledge that people deserve the right to choose whether or not they want to reproduce and have the necessary support in that decision, it still kind of feels like if we're using it to encompass all of these types of care, it implies that our body's purpose is for reproduction. And then, like, the choice not to is kind of, like, the deviation from that norm or purpose. So just things that I was thinking about that I was like, you know, whose opinions I would really like about this? My co-host. So, yeah, I'm just wondering if y'all have thoughts on, like, the language used around all of these things. This is such an interesting point, and I'm so, so glad you brought it up on the episode. Oh, yay. I was like, this is such an annoying semantic-specific question. No. (laughs) It never even occurred to me to think about reproductive justice and really question that term before, so I'm really excited that you brought it up. And it made me think about the way that medicine kind of, like, splices and dices specialties and how that seems arbitrary. And I know, like, we made the joke about dentists in the intro, but it's all, like kind of like with teeth like why is that a whole separate thing that's not part of your body that like somehow it's like a whole other (laughs) dental thing and it's optional which is bizarre and is usually not included in a lot of healthcare plans right it's like a separate healthcare plan yeah yeah that's so arbitrary and bonkers to me um and i just personally tend to view illness and wellness more as like a holistic whole person kind of a thing so and thinking about this, I was like, huh, I wonder if, like, genital justice would be more apt, because it's more specific, even though that's, like, a very strange term to use, even to say. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, in thinking about this, I just think all bitch should have better care, and all people should understand their own bodies more. It made me think about when we had um, Tanya from the Trailbillies on the show, and she said that, like, why do we all have to Nancy Drew our own bodies and figure it out over time? Like, can't somebody just tell us this stuff earlier on? 
Um, so that's that's my main points when I was thinking about this. Um, and then, like, what is included under this umbrella of, like, reproductive justice, as it's traditionally been called, um, is strange, too. Like, pelvic floor health is something that comes up for, like, most anybody who's given birth. Um, and that's, like, not something that's included in gynecological care, even though it's really essential to, like, everything from having pleasurable sex to being able to pee or not pee. So just thinking about that and the way that that's set up is really strange. Yeah, I mean, Zoe and I were talking about this, and I think after thinking about it more, I also feel like it's important to distinguish between reproductive justice, which can be a really broad category, and something more like genital justice, maybe, or sexual health, or sexual rights, maybe, um, which is a much more specific category. Um, because reproductive justice to me is like about all of the decisions that impact who can have kids, who can afford to, who has to worry about their kids being taken away by the state or killed by the state. Um, it's much broader than sexual health, but it also doesn't necessarily include all of the sexual health and wellness decisions that don't have to do with reproduction. Um, and yeah, Zoe and I were talking about the fact that reproductive justice can include the choice not to reproduce and um, I was thinking that it could include even choices you might make around that, like caring for a friend or relative's child, um, even though you yourself don't have children. But it's still sort of centered on this word reproduction. Um, so to me, something like sexual health or genital justice, which I just love, it's so silly and fun, mm -hmm. um, would be more about like the parts of our bodies, regardless of gender, that have to do with how we have sex and, you know, make intimate connections with other people. Um, and of course, sexual health should not just be a burden that's pushed onto women and people with uteruses. There should be birth control that works for cis men. Um, and of course, we desperately need birth control that works better and is more accessible for people of all gender identities in general. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about just this all-encompassing thing that we were discussing. Um, I actually recently read this zine that talks about how uh, Western medicine often adopts this like highly specialized and symptom specific approach, uh, where the primary goals are often just to cure specific things that are wrong with specific parts of the body, instead of, as Hope was saying, examining ailments from like a whole body point of view. And yeah, I think it's, I mean, I guess it can be important for doctors to have certain specialties. Um, but I, there are a couple downsides that I think one of those is that, like we were saying, no parts of the body or the mind operate entirely on their own. And so taking the scope of only treating the part of a person that's ailing can be limiting in some ways. Um, I mean, like we were just talking about this before recording, but like the way that a person's period can affect their mental health and how those two things are interlinked. Like, in the United States, you would commonly see two entirely different people to treat both of those two things. Whereas, like, you know, those two things are very intimately interlinked. And, like, even from a biological perspective, um, the hormones that are, like, fluctuating in your body that cause a person's period can also cause different uh, mental health fluctuations as well. And also, as we were saying, like, insurance companies will also, like, splice and dice things, which is why, again, we have different insurance plans for like our quote-unquote general health care and then we have a separate one often for dental care and if you want to see an eye doctor that's a separate that's another like insurance plan sometimes and I think that just creates so much fine print and 
just like bureaucratic like hoop jumping for a lot of people if they can even have access to those insurance plans and it's just like extremely exhausting from that perspective as well yeah definitely i love how you were like and before this episode we were talking about our periods which is extremely on brand for season of the bitch and accurate (laughs) well yeah (laughs) not to put anybody on blast but zoe is synced with the moon as you might expect (laughs) extremely on brand truly so much i love that for me She really though the other day I like saw that the it, the moon was almost full and I was like fuck it's coming like I knew <laughs> and I was right and I was right well you don't even need an app like I use like a fucking app to tr- uh, track my period you literally the can just look outside the <laughs> <laughs> have you heard about moon cycling that's something that when I was trying to get my periods more regular before getting pregnant that I did, which is where you just like open up your curtains and you still sleep in front of the moon for a whole cycle or two and it helps your periods sync up better. Wow. Did it work? Wow. Yeah. You have to do, yeah. there's some other parts of it. Like, I mean, I had a baby and before I was trying all the stuff, I had a pretty hard time getting pregnant. So yeah, it definitely worked. Um, Whoa. But you have oh to like. Oh my God, Jojo's a moon baby. I mean, duh, for sure. <laughs> I knew, but now it's it's stronger. Now you know. You <laughs> now know. I know. She's yeah. On a much darker note, let's talk about the history of gynecology. So starting where I guess we must start, although I hate to say it, the man who is considered the father of modern gynecology, more aptly, the enemy of the people. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Um, this man whose name is James Marion Sims. Truly, could not possibly hate this man more. I already knew I hated him so much, and then in doing more research for this episode, it just grew stronger and stronger, and Mm -hmm. I'm full of rage. So, why? What did he do? Good question. Well, he started his practice in Pennsylvania, where he killed his first two patients, and then he decided to move to Alabama to start over, and decided to um, switch his practice to experimenting on enslaved black people, um, especially women, of course, and people with uterus. So the, um, you know, the language of the time, people were often assumed of their gender. We're not assuming anything. We don't know. (laughs) But, (laughs) um, yeah. So beginning in 1844, he started experimenting with black people's bodies. One of his notable inventions in quotes from these experiments was creating the speculum which if you don't know or maybe have not had the full displeasure of being to a gynecologist that is the giant metal thing that they use to dilate the cervix and for pelvic exams to like open it up hurts real fucking bad um so if you're ever there in the gyno and you're like wow this feels like torture that's because it was literally intended to be torturous and gynecology as a field has yet to create different tools at this time yeah uh i also wanted to just talk a little more in detail about the historical anti-blackness and misogynoir in gynecology um i had read this interview with dr deirdre cooper owens who's a professor in the history of medicine at the university of nebraska and in that interview she laid out the linkages between slavery in the united states and the advancement of gynecology 
Um, and so basically when the constitution outlawed slave trade between the U.S. and the African continent, that for a lot of slaveholding people in the U.S. presented this problem because they were like, well, how are we going to keep this highly lucrative institution of slavery alive? Because that was what they decided they wanted to care about. And the solution for them was what they called, quote unquote, natural increases. Um, in other words, that meant that they uh, gave enslaved women or enslaved people with uteruses who were already in the United States the added responsibility of having more children since enslavement at the time was a condition that passed from mother to child. And a lot of slaveholders, some of whom were the gynecologists that we have already discussed and will be discussing today, had a stake in ensuring that these quote-unquote natural increases continued to happen. And this led to extremely harmful and unethical gynecologic experimentation on Black women, which Zoe already discussed a bit, um, which was predicated on this ill-conceived notion that Black women and Black people were uh, less susceptible to pain than white people, which is still a notion that exists in medicine to this day. Um, and often certain formulas dictate how much medicine or how much anesthesia uh, patients get, and those formulas ask doctors to plug in different numbers depending on the patient's race. Um, and medical people also believed that Black women were inherently physically stronger than white women, and that seemingly disregards the fact that many Black people at the time were agricultural slaves, whereas white people obviously were not. Yeah, and it was also all of these things were, as you might suspect, hearing them sort of listed out ways to also justify um, the enslavement of African uh, descended people. So in addition to what Bianca was saying, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy where if you're stronger, that's justification for a woman to be out doing men's labor uh, and that those quotation marks that those of you that are not on the Zoom call with us cannot see. And then, you know, if you have been working in the fields and then are considered stronger because of it, it's further justification for your enslavement. So this is the sort of circular logic that medicine relied on back then and in many ways is repeated today, just in different forms. Yeah, definitely. Um, I also, because Bianca brought her up, wanted to plug um, Owen's book, which is called Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology. Um, which has a lot of this info in it. So if after this episode you're like, I want to know more, that's a very good book to read. Um, but going back to our boy, our enemy, Sims, um, his other most notable contribution to the field, and I'm putting everything in quotes because obviously, fuck this man. I cannot emphasize that enough, how much right. we hate him. Mm -hmm. Right, right. But he uh, came up with a surgical technique to repair... Vesio vaginical fistula. Um, perhaps I said that right. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but th that was a common um, 19th century complication of childbirth in which there would be a tear between the uterus and the bladder, which caused pain and often like urine leakage. Um, so unfortunately, the names of most of the people he experimented on are unknown. Um, but I do want to highlight that there are three three women who he experimented on whose names are known, and they are Lucy, Anarka, and Betsy. Um, and so Lucy was 18 years old. So also the records say women, like, 
these they were like 18 and 17 years old. These are very young people. Um, not that it would make a difference if they were older, but just, yes. So Lucy was 18 years old. Um, she became really ill due to controversial use of that he used a sponge to drain the urine away from the bladder, which led to blood poisoning. Um, and she was near death after the surgery. And according to his records, she recovered fully in a few months. Um, saying according to his records, because I don't really trust that at all, but that is the information available. Um, and Anarka, who was 17 years old, he operated on her 30 times, which is how he claimed to have, quote unquote, perfected the surgery. Oh my God. And after that, he then began to do the operation on white women, at which point he started using anesthesia. So there is a common excuse of people saying like, well, anesthesia wasn't really available at the time, but it was magically available when he wanted to do these surgeries on white women. It was magically unavailable when he was doing them on black people. So, yeah. And um, as Bianca said, the, the other reasoning people say for that is the misguided notion that black people do not experience pain in the same way as white people, which we know is extremely racist and untrue. Right. Um, something else I wanted to mention that Deirdre Cooper Owens talks about is that, um, the people who were actually helping James Marion Sims develop and propagate this surgical method, um, were this group of about 10 black women who were enslaved by Sims who worked in his hospital. Um, and what actually happened was that he used to have these two white male surgical assistants and they both quit working for him. And so um, Sims was basically like, okay, I guess I will train these women to take their place. And so like in so many other power structures, whatever recognition Sims received or credit he received for pioneering the surgical uh, procedure, um, it had like it, he became known as like quote unquote the father of modern gynecology and God vomit, which like is not a title that we want to affirm, but like he did get some sort of like recognition for the work that he had done. Um, and I just wanted to point out that any successor recognition that he derived um, wouldn't have been pos- possible without this group of black women who he depended on and had likely exploited for their labor. Yeah. Also, speaking of him getting recognition, this fucking man went on to serve as president of the American Medical Association in 1875 and president of the American Gynecological Society in 1879. So, like, people in the medical world really thought that this guy was fucking doing great things. And, like, part of that was why he was so applauded for this work was because at the time... Um, treating women or really treating anyone who was not a cis man with anything other than like hysteria was considered distasteful in medicine and it was really rarely done. So, but the racism and gynecology did not end there and has continued in so many ways, as I know um, Julia is going to get very in depth on in a little bit. Um, But I also just wanted to mention um, kind of around the same time period that this was all happening in the U.S., there were also abusive practices in gynecology happening in Europe. So in the 1800s, pelvic exams were pretty much used as, like, punishment for, quote-unquote, women of vice 
um, or like women who did not conform to societal norms and expectations. So in Britain, there was a Contagious Diseases Act in 1860, which meant that any woman could be examined for STDs under the slightest suspicion of her being a sex worker, um, which the slightest suspicion, which can mean literally anything. Um, she was walking down the street without a man, like any reason. Um, and if convicted, they were then forcibly confined to hospitals and asylums. The doctors also would often not wash the tools in between testing people so that, of course, anyone with an ounce of common sense knows where this goes. That also led to a lot of spreading of STIs between people because they were not washing their, like, tools in between. So, yeah, fucked up. Wow. This uh, gynecology as, like, a, a tool of the state and a way of enforcing... I guess social norms makes me think of this story that my friend just told me a couple of days ago and she gave birth not too long ago, a couple of years back maybe. And her baby was taken away for drug testing as soon as it was born. And they told her it's because it was crying too much, but really it's because my friend is black. Oh my God. And if it had been positive, there's a really good chance they would have taken her baby away and she would have faced charges. Um, and they just don't do that to white babies at all. Yeah. Definitely. <sighs> I know, this is, like, extremely not uplifting episode. And and it continues. So, um, another piece of historical stuff that I wanted to talk about is the use of medical experimentation that happened to Jewish people during the Holocaust. Unsurprisingly, most of the records about these experiments were destroyed, so the available information is limited. I did find some, like, testimonials online from survivors of concentration camps who had been part of these experiments, but I they were, like, too dark. I could not read them on air. You can look them up um, for yourself. I, yeah, I was like, no, this is even for this episode too much. Um, but so there were different kind of pseudo-medical experiments that took place in different concentration camps. In Auschwitz specifically, their goal was to find the fastest and cheapest mode for sterilization. The experiments were carried out by yet another cis man, surprise, surprise, Dr. Joseph Mengele. Um, Mengele or Mengele? Mengele. Oh, it's Mengele. Mengele. Yeah. Mm, well, I hate him. Not that it matters to get his name right. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. So what they did was um, inject a radiological contrast liquid into the fallopian tubes, which were then x-rayed for patency. They were then told to run around the room before being injected again with another liquid that was likely formalin, but kind of unknown what it is. Um, the experiments were repeated three to six times on the same people in about a three about three to four weeks apart. The injected substances, um, the injected substance was expected to block the fallopian tubes. The next stage of the experiment, which was planned but not carried out is that they were going to then force people um, that had that done to their fallopian tubes to have sex with, quote-unquote, male prisoners to test the effectiveness of this method. Unsurprisingly, the people involved in the experiment got very sick due to inflammation of fallopian tubes and uterus and the whole area, um, and many died from that. And even after Auschwitz was dismantled, they a lot of the patients of this were transferred to Ravensbrück, where the experiments continued. There were several other tactics that were used in this time, such as 
attempting to just remove reproductive organs, which happened to people of all all genital having people and inserting cancerous cells into the uterus. And they also attempted to remove part of the cervix and several other very vile operations. So yeah, there's a very long history of forced sterilization happening in the U.S. as well, which I know Julia is going to tell us all about. Yeah, so this is about to be a lot um, because there is a long history of this, but I think yeah. it's very important to talk about. Um, so coming into some slightly more recent history, starting in the 1900s, more than half of state governments made it legal to forcibly sterilize anyone who is determined to be incapable of making their own childcare decisions. These policies generally explicitly named poor people and people with mental illnesses and people with disabilities in that category. Uh, this was kind of seen as a method of eliminating undesirable traits from society, which is obviously fucked. Um, they also had something that people may have heard of called eugenics boards who reviewed petitions to sterilize people. Um, thousands of men, women, and children were sterilized under these laws. Informally, um, this was also used as an excuse to say that mostly women of color could be sterilized. Um, it was just sort of people were put into these categories of not being able to make their own childcare decisions, um, basically whoever the state wanted to sterilize. Um, and in North Carolina, for example, 65% of women sterilized were black um, over the 20th century, even though they only made up 25% of the population. So that's a really big, dramatic difference there. Yeah. Um, I know we've talked about forced sterilizations on the pod before, and I know I specifically have talked about it in the context of North Carolina, which is my home state, um, <laughs> brag. So um, <laughs> I'm sorry to longtime listeners that I'm going to repeat myself a little bit here, but... I think it's worth talking about, like Julia said. Um, and North Carolina, like many other states, as we've established, had forced sterilization processes or, and practices that went on well into the second half of the 20th century. Um, but North Carolina was particularly bad. Um, into the 1970s, uh, people, specifically primarily Black women and girls, were being taken into doctor's offices and permanently sterilized without their consent. So a lot of times we're talking about girls who are around the age of 14 or 15 who were brought to hospitals or doctor's offices under false pretenses, um, often not being told exactly what was going to happen, uh, and then having what are invasive procedures performed on them um, and not learning until sometimes years afterwards what had actually happened during those visits. Um, and this is not something that was going on like a long time ago. This was going on until 1977. Um, that was the last year that the program functioned in North Carolina. And it wasn't until 2014 that the state started to compensate the survivors. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is important to point out this is not, like, distant history at all. It's really recent. Um, yeah. So, yeah, around this same time, um, in the 1890s, the U.S. took control of Puerto Rico um, and began population control there as well. Um, often the argument was used that overpopulation was a problem in Puerto Rico and was leading to poverty, um, which I think is something that we continue to see now where people will talk about quote-unquote overpopulation is a problem, um, and the proposed solutions are very fucked up. Um, so by the 1930s, um, 
sterilization processes were institutionalized legally in Puerto Rico. And this, similar to what Kellen was just talking about, wasn't repealed until the 1960s. Um, So tubal ligation, what's informally known as having your tubes tied, was so common it was just known as la operación, which just means the operation in Spanish. So it was so common it didn't even need a specific name. It was just the operation. By some estimates, about one third of Puerto Rican women ages 20 to 50 were sterilized, which is just a crazy number of people. Um, Yeah, a significant amount of those women didn't even know that they were being sterilized, or if they did, they were told the procedure was reversible, um, and the informal name, tying your tubes, also made people think that you might be able to untie them, and that wasn't fully explained to people that it wasn't reversible. Um, Also, the birth control pill was tested on Puerto Rican women in the 1950s without full informed consent. Um... Then moving into the 1930s, um, southern states created publicly funded birth control clinics, um, which is interesting because I feel like now a lot of people think of southern states as being places where it's harder to get birth control um, and abortions and other forms of reproductive care. Um, But the basis behind it was to lower the black birth rate specifically. So there was forced sterilization um, and other issues of non-consensual medical procedures. So during this time and moving later into the 20th century, this became a really big issue for the Black Panthers um, and other Black nationalist groups. Um, They really wanted to focus on fighting forced sterilization. So the main concern in those circles was about being able to have children if you wanted to, because so many Black women and other Black people were being sterilized without consent um, and forcibly in many cases. Yeah, there's also um, this whole issue, which I think a lot of people who listen to our podcast are probably familiar with, which is the tie between many early advocates for birth control and the eugenics movement. So like, as Julia was just saying, the birth birth control was considered like one method that could be used to lower the birth rate of so-called undesirable people. Um, And one of the big advocates of birth control who liked it because it could give middle class women some control over their bodies and their lives, but also because it could be used to keep other people from reproducing was Margaret Sanger. Um, You may know Margaret because she founded Planned Parenthood and is also the person who's credited with coining the term birth control. Um, Sanger believed that poor people shouldn't be having kids for moral reasons uh, and thought that birth control could be a means to literally, you know, control the reproduction of a class of people who, from her perspective, would not or could not control it themselves. Um, Planned Parenthood has been like fumbling around for a long time about like how to deal with this legacy. Um, But in the last couple of weeks, they actually did just announce that their lower Manhattan clinic, which is named after Sanger, would be changing its name actually because of the history with the eugenics movement. Yeah, that's I I hadn't heard that. That's great. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to say is these policies didn't just impact women or people with uteruses who were assumed to be women by the state or by doctors. Um, I think a major example of men's sexual rights being violated that a lot of people may know about also happened in the 1930s. Um, This was the Tuskegee Institute study on Black men who had syphilis. Um, They were not told what the study was about, and they didn't receive proper treatment for syphilis. 
Um, also in the 1940s, I know this is something Zoe wanted to bring up as well. U.S. researchers did a study on both men and women in Guatemala, um, mostly sex workers and people who were incarcerated and people who otherwise were very marginalized already. Um, and this involved intentionally infecting people with syphilis and other STIs to test how penicillin worked on them. Um, and syphilis can cause infertility in people of all genders. So this is another way that people of all genders had their sexual rights infringed on. Um, and then moving on to even more recent history, in the 1960s and 70s, the U.S. began focusing on offering, quote unquote, family planning to indigenous women. Um, and similar to the numbers that we see in Puerto Rico, as many as one fourth of indigenous women ages 15 to 45 were sterilized in the U.S. in the 1960s and 70s. Um, which is also just, again, like, I just really want to highlight how wild and that is a really high number, like, terrible. Um, also in the 1960s, there were a lot of issues that people may be more aware of um, around dangerous, quote unquote, illegal abortions. Um, and this was one of the things that helped spark the second wave feminist movement. Um, so this focused on wealthier and whiter women who were more concerned about not being able to have a child if they wanted to versus some of the concerns that were common amongst women of color of being forcibly sterilized and not being able to have a child if they wanted to. So this is kind of where the mainstream, um, you know, white feminist movement began to focus more heavily on access to abortion, while many women of color had more concerns around the opposite demand, which was not being forcibly sterilized. Um Although, just to be clear, the lack of access to safe abortion during this time did seriously harm poor women of color. Um, there were often abortion quotas that meant only a really small number of people could get legal abortions, and these were overwhelmingly given to middle and upper class white women. So women of color pretty much just could not get safe and legal abortions. Um, so during this time, women of color started to create a new framework which eventually came to be called reproductive justice, that sort of united these two concerns. Um, essentially, it was the idea that everyone should be able to have kids when they want to and not when they don't, which is actually pretty simple and, you know, something I think we should all be in favor of. Um, but it did lead to some important differences in reproductive justice advocates versus what mainstream pro-choice advocates were fighting for. Um, one example is there was a group in New York called the Committee to End Sterilization Abuse um, in the 1970s, um, and this was a women of color-led org that fought for a mandatory 30-day waiting period for sterilization, but a lot of more mainstream and mostly white feminist groups opposed this because they had been denied access to sterilization procedures that they wanted, such as having their tubes tied. Um, but for CESA, a woman of color-led org, the concern was more about being forced into it without proper consent. Um, and I think, you know, the, we still sometimes see these issues coming up where there can be a bit of a divide between these two strains of thought um, when it comes to reproductive justice. Um, another important court case that I wanted to mention, this was in the 1960s and 70s in Los Angeles. Um a huge number of Mexican-American women underwent forced and coerced sterilization. Um, so just to be clear, forced sterilization would be when it's done fully against your will, like when you're unconscious, and coerced would be maybe like when you technically agree to it under false terms, like if you're told it's reversible um, or given some sort of incentives to do it. Um, and there's definitely overlap between these two. 
Um, but so these women ended up eventually starting a class action lawsuit against the hospital, um, but they did not win the lawsuit, which is extremely fucked up. Um, this is another example that people may have heard of. Um, so I think that kind of covers some of the major events of like, you know, past, recent past history of these issues. Um, but moving into more recent and ongoing slash current events, um, in the 2000s, it started to come to light that judges across the country were ordering people, particularly women, but some men as well, to undergo birth control or sterilization procedures as a condition of release on probation. Um, people may have heard of this case in 2017, where there was this judge in Tennessee who was offering reduced sentences for incarcerated people who agreed to birth control. Um, so for men, this would be undergoing a vasectomy procedure and women who got a birth control implant. Um, and this was offered free of charge, which is, you know, obviously people should have free healthcare if they want it, but this is an example of coerced sterilization where people are given this incentive that's really hard to say no to getting out of prison early and told that in order to get that, you have to undergo sterilization. Yeah. Um, I think this is just a good example of how something that we, you know, would fight for when it's freely given with consent, which would be free birth control for everyone who wants it is clearly bad and terrible when it's being forced upon people. Um, and people who aren't incarcerated as well are often talked into procedures on the same day that they're giving birth, um, including sterilization. I think something about this that really stands out to me is just that it's really hard to make a decision like that at such a stressful time, especially when you may be under medications and things um, that make it hard for you to make a fully informed decision. Um, and it's often forced on people really quickly. They're like, you have to make a decision right now. Um, but on the other hand, people are still denied birth control procedures when doctors think that there are reasons against it. Like, for example, oh, you might want to have kids later. But then it's like, you don't really know me. How do you know that? Um, I have a friend, for example, who has two kids and she wanted to get her tubes tied, which she felt really complicated about as a Latina woman, because there's this whole history of forcible sterilization of Latina women. Um, but she decided that was what was right for her. And her doctor was like, first of all, no, you're too young. You're going to change your mind. Um, she's in her 20s. But then her doctor was finally like, oh, you should like ask your husband first and talk to him and like come in with him and then we can all talk about it, which is just like what this is still happening. And that is crazy. Um, she had to go to like three different doctors before she found one who would do the procedure. So there's still like huge issues on, on both sides of this, like people not being able to get birth control that they want and people being forced into it when they don't really want it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Julia, for taking us through all of that. Fun fact for people at home. Once upon a time, Julia was facilitating a reading group on reproductive justice that I was attending. So here we are. showed up. Wow. And I was like, oh my God, a famous podcast host. <laughs> I'm so shy. <laughs> oh my God. And here we are. Yeah. So love that. Love this for us. Um, yeah. Full circle. <laughs> but... Moving on, or continuing to talk about kind of current practices that are still super fucked up, um, I want to talk a little about non-consensual pelvic exams, um, which happen on anesthetized patients, which 
brag, I am cited on Snopes.com for having researched what? this topic when I was working oh, at Bust. I didn't know. My A professor of mine from college emailed me and was like, I just saw you on Snopes. I'm so proud of you. And I was like, what wow. is happening? So, I love that. So brag, expert on this topic. Don't really want to be, though. Wish <sighs> I knew less. Um, just kidding. These things are important to know. Thanks for listening, everyone. Um, so yeah, it is super common for teaching hospitals, um, all around, um, like Western countries to have, um, med students, quote unquote, practice performing pelvic exams on surgical patients while they're under anesthesia without consent or even knowledge of this happening. Um, according to Medscape, oftentimes multiple med students will practice on the same patient. In the U.S., non-consensual pelvic exams are legal in 46 states, everywhere besides Hawaii, California, Illinois, and Virginia. It's um, terrible. In 2007, yeah, it's like really horrifying. Oh my in 2007, God. a study found that approximately 72% of med students have done a pelvic exam on an anesthetized patient. Yikes. Um, Lauren Dobson-Hughes, who is the former president of Plan- Planned Parenthood, wrote about this and She said that after there was media coverage about this happening, many people came forward about unexplained internal bruising and vaginal pain after undergoing unrelated surgeries. So surgeries that would not have otherwise caused those um, side effects. She heard anecdotally from many others saying that um, like they would ask for their own medical records and that was blocked or redacted as hospitals will attempt to cover these things up. So um, it's, it's really hard to find out if that is something that's happened to you and they, yeah, do not have to tell you. So real fucked up, still happening today. Yeah, that's literally, that's horrifying. And I think it just like goes to show how important transparency is and like full unquestionable consent on the patient's part. Um, because when you go to a gynecologist or any medical person, you're placing a lot of your trust in them, and that can be very detrimental if that person who's in charge of your healthcare uh, doesn't have your best interests in mind, or maybe isn't fully knowledgeable about all the different ways that people and their bodies can exist. I feel like the story is about I'm about to tell is like by comparison, like just like like I don't want to say trivial but it's just like something that happened to me that made me feel uncomfortable but I think it goes into just like how different attitudes about gynecology and the way that gynecology is taught in medical schools is still lacking in some areas mm. um and so I got my first pap smear when I was 22 this was in January congratulations so, thank you I feel like it's so late I know I, I think been, I waited till I was like 25. no that's like when I got my first one as okay well. I think I have been normal. taught in some health class that you should go like when you're like 18 or something and I was like okay like I don't know why but I didn't so I was I was 22 um and I went to this gynecologist and like I had chosen her because, like, one, she was in network, which was obviously a big concern, but also because she was Chinese. And so I was like, okay, like, maybe I'll feel a little bit more comfortable talking about, uh, like, my sexual health with her. Maybe our attitudes about medicine and how we treat our bodies are kind of similar because we might share the same culture or a similar cultural background. Um, And so I decided to go to her. Um, 
the pap smear itself like went fine i mean i had had a speculum inserted before so i knew like what that felt like and i was like i think i had been told it was going to be like very 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 painful and i think for me it just felt like just an unpleasant scraping for a couple seconds um but like in the conversations that followed i started to feel like increasingly alienated mostly because she was like all right, like we're going to take a look at the cells in your cervix to see if there are any abnormalities and any cell abnormalities are typically caused by HPV. And so I was like, okay, well, if I have HPV, does that mean that I'll spread it when I have sex? And she was like, I remember her saying this very clearly. She was like, well, the chances are lower if he wears a condom. Mm. And I was like, you're like, who's he? I was like, who are you? Who? Yeah, I was like, wait, (laughs) I literally was like on the chair, like, I have to take a step back. I was like, but what if I have sex with people who don't have penises? Like what? I didn't even know how to really say it because I was just like so uncomfortable because it became so clear to me that they're like, she was so accustomed to discussing these topics in like this like perfunctory way because she was immediately like, all right, well, here's how you have safe sex with someone who has a penis because I see that you, I like see you as somebody who looks statistically female, and I assume that, like, you have sex with people who have penises, men, basically. And so when I asked her about sex that does not look like that, she was like, uh, well, HPV spreads through body fluids, and I was, that was, like, basically it, and so I was like, okay, I don't really know, like, what, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Um, my, like, pap smear came back and I didn't have any like cell abnormalities but I was like just thinking about like if I did what I would have done in the aftermath I probably would have had to do just like so much research on my own just so I could continue to be a responsible sexual partner Mm -hmm. um and I know like not all OBGYNs are like this but I think this particular experience for me highlighted like, just how heteronormative the field still is and how um, the field still centers cis people yeah. in general. Yeah, definitely. I also, I feel like, I mean, you said, like, this was sort of a smaller issue, and I just feel like it's important to say that, like, these issues are all related. And, mm-hmm. like, it is, I feel like, you know, most people have not undergone forced sterilization but most people have had an experience with the gynecologist that has made them super uncomfortable so i feel like they're super closely linked and basically just you know i don't feel like you have to minimize your experience and how like weird and uncomfortable that was um i think there are just so many issues in general around people who aren't cis women trying to access sexual health care Um, definitely when I've been presenting as more androgynous or, like, boy-looking, I have had people who work in gynecologist offices be confused about why I'm there, and they're like, are you here with someone? Or, like, are you here to see a doctor? And it's like, yeah, that's why I'm here. (laughs) Um, I also have trans-masculine friends who have not been able to access care at all, or just not in a way that felt at all safe for them. Um, it's also an ongoing issue that a lot of trans people are forced to undergo sterilization procedures before they can access gender confirmation surgery or before legally changing their name or gender. Um, a lot of times the argument when these sorts of laws are passed is made that if you really want to be that gender, then you shouldn't want any sexual organs that are assumed not to match that gender. Um, and while some trans people may want those types of procedures, um, forcing it on people is obviously terrible. People should be able to make their own choices about what's right for their body. 
Um, and like we talked about a little bit um, on an episode a couple weeks ago, intersex children and other children who are determined to have sexual characteristics that don't match quote unquote traditional male or female bodies um, are often forced to undergo non-consensual surgeries and hormone treatment to change their bodies. Um, sterilization can be a common side effect of this. Um, and There are other serious health problems that can occur as well. Um, also, a lot of people don't know this, but hormone therapy can sometimes lead to people being sterile, um, and people are often not fully informed about this. Um, and there are other options like banking eggs or sperm before you start HRT, but these are currently really expensive and inaccessible. So that's a problem that a lot of trans and gender nonconforming people face. Um, on the other side of that coin, doctors will often tell people that once they start HRT, they can definitely never have kids again, and they will definitely become infertile, which is not universally true. Many trans men and women have been able to have children after being on HRT. Um, and, you know, just to throw this in there, I don't think this is too important to highlight, but there are issues that involve cis men as well. <laughs> um, for example, cis men who have partners with uteruses may want to take a more active role in birth control, but there's no readily accessible non-surgical birth control option for men, um, for cis men. So that's also an issue. Yeah. T- yeah. There was that like one study that they did of birth control on cis men and they stopped it because they, they were stopped like, oh, it because yeah. like, like the side effects it was like too th- bad yeah it was like three percent or something became depressed which like yes is bad but do you know what the side effects are on everyone else who's on birth control like <laughs> oh god yeah so need to work on that you know even the assumption that taking hormonal birth control is the way to go for everyone as kind of a blanket thing is problematic also um, I remember I've I've not taken hormonal birth control since I was like in high school, probably. I just didn't do good things for my body or my mental health. Um, and so I got really into like, you know, knowing my own body, tracking my own fertility, learning when I was fertile or infertile, using condoms when it was a higher risk time. And every doctor I've ever had has been like, you're going to get pregnant. You have to go on birth control. That's the only way to prevent babies. And I just think that's absurd that we don't that doctors can't work with you about okay what are your reasons and respect you enough to have that be a two-way conversation yeah totally yeah and I know we shared like similar experiences to what you're talking about and what Bianca was talking about when we did that episode of herpes and other STDs um but yeah I mean sexuality and gender confirming gynecology is super important and unfortunately is very much not the norm I had a doctor, this is not even like my worst gyno story, but I don't even want to get into that. But I went to this doctor, he was a cis man, I was there to get like an STD panel. And they asked like, do you have sex with men or women? And I was like, I have sex with anyone of any gender. (laughs) And then he was asking like how frequently and blah, 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 and about condoms and all this shit. And then he just started like slut shaming me and being like, do you know what you're doing? Do you realize like blah, blah, blah. And I was like, First of all, I'm here to get STD tested because, oh like, God. I am responsible about my sex life. But also, who the fuck are you, dude? <laughs> I don't need your advice. It was just, like, really weird. And he was like, are you being careful? Oh, and I was in D.C. And he's like, have you slept with anyone in Baltimore? Because Baltimore <gasps> has, like, higher rates of oh um, STDs. God. And what? I was like, you now need the geographical location of my sexual partners to, like, <laughs> oh to give me an STD. Panel. That's also extremely, like racist like that is a racially coded statement too yeah 
No, oh, it was all my God. Extremely weird. I had a, I, after a very bad experience, um, I had to go to like an emergency gynecologist situation once, and the gyno that was on call was a man and I had never had um, a man I had like studiously avoided ever seeing a male gynecologist yeah. like I tried I, I know sometimes it's unavoidable as in this case when it's you're literally in the emergency room and um, I I had been like uh, I guess you already put like a trigger warning at the beginning of this I had been drugged and assaulted and the man started lecturing me about how this is what happens when you don't watch your drink when you go to the bathroom and then asked me he was I I had like he was like well you know I could do a rape kit but with things the way they are you probably don't want me poking around down there and I was like are you fucking kidding me anyway then he left the room and I started sobbing and the nurse came back in and was like what's going on and I was like well he just told me that this would teach me not to leave my drink and she was like oh he didn't mean it that way I was like bitch what kind of way could he possibly have meant it oh my god oh my fucking god I hate 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 that man so anyway I hate him too thank you so much Zoe you, I mean, and you know that I mean it. You know, oh, I, I know that, that you I will mean come it. for him. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me when and where. Uh, but yeah, yeah, unfortunately, really uncomfortable and awful. a common experience. It feels like experiences, yeah, are are really common. The the first guy I went to was a cis dude. Again, not by my choice. It was like the only person I could whatever, whatever. And I was like having ovarian cysts and I said like they feel worse during my ovulation period I was like 16 and I was like figuring all this shit out with the internet and I like told him and he was just like oh no it's impossible that you can feel when you're ovulating and I was like no I can tell when I'm ovulating because I'm getting because it is common that if you have ovarian cysts they can like get worse during ovulation time and he was just like no that's impossible and like that was it Oh my god. <sighs> so anyway, I'm sure we could go on and on, but Just in the name the of time, stories. seriously, I have kind of a final question for you all. Um, I love, like, I feel like these questions are just like, Zoe got stoned and needed answers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we love it. But yeah, the last thing I wanted to talk about is like, since gynecology was built on, as we've talked about for the past hour systemic racism and heteropatriarchy just as like the u.s at large is founded on these systemic things like how do you think that we move forward in seeking and creating the care that we need it kind of feels like talking about like oh change gynecology or like train them better is comparable to being like we can reform cops because these things were never built to be equitable um, the difference here being that, like, we do need some form of gynecology and we do not need cops, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, comparable in, like, the kind of reform narrative. So, yeah, like, what what do we do going forward? What do y'all think? Yeah, I mean, I personally do feel like we need to throw out the whole system of gynecology and start over. Um, to be honest, I feel this way about the whole medical system, which we will hopefully be getting into in future episodes. Yes, um, 
And I mean, you know, I don't want to go too far because I think, you know, we do know, doctors do know a lot more about the human body than they did when gynecology was invented. (laughs) Um, And that is largely due to the sacrifices of like the women of color that we've been talking about who had to undergo these horrible experiments. Um, But, you know, doctors do have like real expertise about bodies. Um, But I do think that we need to really rethink the system where like we've been talking about, the doctor assumes that they're the only expert in the room and you don't know anything about your own body or experiences. And you can literally tell a doctor what you're experiencing and they'll just be like, no, you're not experiencing that. That's impossible. Um, I guess for me, I feel like maybe the way forward is sort of similar to how with abolishing cops and prisons, there already is some of like the transformative justice work that we really need that's happening now that we can model off of. Um, And similarly, there's already a lot of important reproductive justice mutual aid work happening that I think could serve as a really good starting point for what we really want sexual health and reproductive care to look like. Um, I'm thinking of examples like the Black Women Doula Movement, which Um, partly came out of addressing maternal mortality rates for Black women, which are much, much higher than they are for white women. Um, And one way that they want to address that is having an experienced advocate in the room who is focused just on providing what the person giving birth wants, um, which is a bit different to how a lot of doctors view their specific role. Um, And one example in the Bay Area is Black women birthing justice. Um, That's one group doing that sort of work. Um, And I feel like there's been a lot of cool mutual aid work happening recently, especially since Trump was elected, with people providing information about how to give yourself a safe at-home abortion using pills. Um, And this kind of work draws on the work of the Jane Collective, which helped people get abortions safely in the 1960s and 70s. Um, They did use the help of male doctors who decided to break the law and sort of take pregnant people's lead instead of assuming that they were the only experts in the room. Um, But the Jane Collective then started to realize that a lot of the male doctors they were working with had just lied about being doctors and they just taught themselves how to do abortions. Um, So then this led to the group realizing like, oh, we could just train ourselves on how to give abortions and then we wouldn't even need to rely on doctors. Um, So I don't know. I think there is like a line where it's a tricky line where yes, doctors do have a lot of important health expertise and we need that training. But I think also the assumption that doctors are the only people who can sort of be experts on bodies is not fully accurate. And I think we need to rethink that. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, yeah, I guess what I was just going to say is more about like ways that I think like this current healthcare system can be, I guess, like, shifted or changed or ways that I feel like I'm seeing it shift or change. Um, I guess the main thing, I, well, one of the first things I wanted to say was, like, I feel like it's kind of hard to talk about equity in healthcare without talking about equity and access to healthcare, since even being able to get and afford the treatment we need is, like, the first and probably most crucial step. I mean, as you were talking, Julia, I was thinking that, like, one of the ways to make access to healthcare more equitable is through the things you were talking about with the Black Women Doula movement and with these mutual aid groups who are kind of taking um, healthcare practices into their own hands and like um, doing the training themselves. But I also just think like the obvious solution from like an institutional level to the extent that we believe that the institution can change is to continue to push for a universal single-payer healthcare system 
instead of continuing to perpetuate and work within our current profit-driven system. I know we've talked a lot about this on the podcast in relation to what Joe Biden is or isn't for, um, but that's a totally separate point. Um, (laughs) But in terms of like different approaches to care itself, I think something that I feel kind of optimistic about is that the attitudes among some people who are going into medicine are shifting, or at least in some of the circles that I'm familiar with. Um, So like, I feel like when doctors and medical students do really genuinely care about and study the racial disparities in healthcare and also gender inclusive healthcare practices, like, and they really care about manifesting it in their bedside manner and the way they approach their patients in general, I think that can make a difference. Um, And I think that studying those links between racism and medicine, as well as studying gender affirming healthcare practices, like, should probably be more universally included in medical school curricula since I don't think they exist in, they're not common fixtures in a lot of med school curricula right now. Um, And I know we wanted to talk about this on future episodes. Hopefully we can talk to people who actually are in the medical field who care and know a lot about these issues. Um, And so I don't want to talk too far into it, but I'm excited to delve deeper, hopefully in the future. And I agree with most of what you both said. I think those are really solid, stellar points. And I would just kind of emphasize um, empowering people. So you both talked a little bit about kind of like mutual aid and things that we can do as a collective. But I also think the ways that we as individuals can do that, you know, even without a bigger kind of movement behind us. So empowering people to do things like know when they're ovulating, how to check your own breasts for changes in lumps, safer sex, lots of herbs and nutrition, all of that's important. Um, And I also think, you know, there's some work we could do around coaching people on self-advocacy, even at a very personal level that just occurred to me while we were planning this episode, but like offering to go with your friends to the doctor. There's no reason you can't say like, oh, are you nervous about this? I'll go with you. I'll sit in the room. I won't look at anything you're not comfortable with, but I just want to be there to advocate for you. And you don't need any special training to do that, right? Um, And then like pushing for doulas and other support people for birth, abortion, and miscarriage events, all of that really helps. And I, I do think we need to push against the idea that a doctor knows more about your body than you do, because it really should be a partnership. You know, it's like, it would be so crazy if you took your car to the mechanic And the mechanic was like, you don't need to tell me anything about the history of your car. I already like know what's wrong with it. Just drop it (laughs) off and I'll fix it up. Right. That would be totally crazy. (laughs) They at least want to know, like, is it making sounds? (laughs) Like, have you noticed any changes in it? So we should at least expect that kind of partnership with our doctors, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. All right, y'all. Thank you for listening. As always, um, this was a great episode in my personal opinion. Um, If you liked it, if you like our stuff, you know, you could throw us a couple dollars on Patreon. That's it patreon.com slash season of the bitch um you can also find us online at twitter and at instagram at season of the bitch i'm using the word hang on i just realized that i was using the word at a lot and then i threw out the wrong handle so i'm just gonna like (laughs) you don't find somebody at instagram you find them on instagram so let me rephrase all of that You can find us on Instagram and on Twitter at Season of the Bee. Uh, you can find us um, on 
Gmail. (laughs) (laughs) The social media platform known as Gmail. You can add us on Gmail. (laughs) DM us on Gmail. I don't know. You can tweet at us at Gmail. (laughs) You can slide into our Gmail. (laughs) Not our GMs. Our Gmail address. <laughs> Our email address is seasonofthebe at gmail.com. If you've managed to follow us this far through that little whatever that was, send us an email, let us know. Um, please rate, review, and subscribe, but only if you have nice things to say on iTunes. And uh, yeah, I think that about covers it. Love you guys. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bitch. Oh.